Last uh, interview, I think we ended up talking about your experience as uh, uh, an arts and monuments officer in Europe. And um, I think there's a little piece of unfinished business. You were going to say something uh, about well, some of the more memorable experiences you had during that time. I'm wondering if you could do that now. Well, I should think probably three out of the lot would be uh, would be worth a moment. The uh, the first one was a a huge mine at uh, Merkers, more or less central Germany. I forget, but it's, it's a number of miles east of Frankfurt. And uh, uh, I got a order to get over there and clear out works of art from the Merkers, the mine in the Merkers area. That was in April, uh, I think early April of uh, 1945. It had been a last minute evacuation of uh, works of art from Berlin. Mm -hmm. They had evidently trusted on their, I think they call them Flachtour, to protect these things until it became dubious that that would really work. And so they made a hasty uh, trip, uh, loads and loads of trucks, which went out to this deep salt mine in, in, at the town of Merkers, M-E-R-K-E-R-S. Mm -hmm. There, <coughs> there was a huge working. You could go, I think, for eight or ten uh, kilometers underground and uh, not repeat yourself. Incredible. It was a huge thing. Well, our fellows had got there a little before I, I mean the combat fellows, mm -hmm. and uh, it was in Third Army area under General Patton. And he didn't uh, like to have British officers operating in his area. So that's why I went there instead of the uh, senior officer chief. I was at, 12, at uh, 12th Army Group under General Bradley. And uh, by the time I, I got down there on my uh, order, the uh, men in combat units who had, had taken the place and uh, had been uh, required by their officers to give some kind of an explanation of what was down there. They'd learned something from local German uh, curators who had been uh, in charge of the deposit and also not only curators but other uh, experts in various fields because besides the 
works of art from the uh, Kunsthistorisches Museum and from the other museums in Berlin. Now, the Kunsthistorisches Museum is not in Berlin, that's in Vienna. It's, it, it's the, uh, it was the uh, Kaiser Friedrich Museum. And the uh, other museums, the ancient museum and so forth, uh, there were also the scores and the costumes of the uh, Berlin Opera, hmm. and there were uh, deposits there from the uh, uh, Bank of Germany, uh, a wide variety of foreign currency notes, hmm. of uh, notes on the on the Reichsbank, and uh, what was a rather grim. Uh, content of those of that uh, banking deposit were uh, literally chests full of gold teeth which had been knocked out of their victim. Uh, it was a when the word got back to headquarters it was quite a notable affair in the European Front. Uh, General Eisenhower himself came down to view it, mm -hmm. uh, along with uh, General Bradley. I think General Gay, who was the chief of staff for uh, General Patton. General Patton didn't really get away. Uh, but what was the chief attraction, the uh, evidence of the well, atrocities? Well, they were more more interested, of course, in the uh, bank deposit mm. uh, things. And uh, so we went along until we got to the point where we were ready to haul. I had had a rather mixed company of uh, men uh, working with me for the business of sorting and packing. I did not have to move the uh, the uh, opera holding, but I did have to move all the things from the museums. And uh, started with the enlisted men who were just handed over as a work detail. And uh, then the front was moving along and they had to go on with their outfit. And so then I got a work party of German prisoners. And uh, amongst us, we got things ready to move. And it was a big move, the uh, biggest I ever had to do with. Uh, Any time, I think. I think we had 40 10-ton trucks. And since it was in combat area, we had a pretty full escort. Uh, the uh, shock troops in their own vehicles, bristling with hand grenades and all their camouflage and everything, and uh, they were sprinkled along amongst us. And then uh, there were three or four aircraft flying along overhead as we made our way from Merkers to Frankfurt. And there, uh, my share of the load went uh, into 
the Reichsbank at Frankfurt. Um, so that was taken care of, and uh, you can tell by the number of trucks involved, it was a pretty big, pretty big haul. It was the biggest I had to do with it all. How do you remember how many trucks did you mention that? Forty, forty ten-ton trucks. Forty ten-ton. Um, one of them, one of the trucks was loaded with uh, the German prisoners who were the work party. Mm -hmm. But that leaves 39, so that's still quite a few. It was a good load, yeah. What of course, we had a we had an intercommunication telephone system going along the line, so we knew how everything went. Do you remember any uh, uh, exceptional objects uh, that were in your care during that move? Oh, it'd be hard to pick them out. Yeah. But I mean, a lot I of would, works of art think paintings. Of, of what was in the. Uh, in the Kaiser Friedrich Museum True. and in the uh, ancient museum. Mm -hmm. The one that I particularly remember was uh, that uh, famous Egyptian head of Nefertiti because the <laughs> case, not very big as you know, the no. case in which it was uh, loaded, packed, somehow or other it got broken open. So <laughs> I remember that very clearly. <laughs> But you got there in time, I guess, to... Oh, yeah, say. there was no damage to the head, whatever. What about the objects? What about the paintings? Um, were they basically... Uh, had they been stored in a way uh, designed to or preserve them? Were they in good condition? Well, for the most part, I should think certainly as much as 75% of the individual items of artifact, <clears throat> they were in cases. I see. And those, with an occasional exception of a broken lid, mm -hmm. uh, those were all right. There was, however, a considerable number that gave us quite a lot of trouble. Uh, they were more recent paintings, nineteenth mm. century for the most part, and uh, they were not uh, not in cases. They just apparently hadn't been time. I see. But the old master paintings were actually uh, protected in special cases. They were in cases, yes. What were they? Uh, uh, boxes, wooden boxes. Wood, wooden cases, yes. Wooden boxes. Mm -hmm. Some of them housed more than one object, and most of them, in fact, did. Uh, prior to our troops moving in, a group of, um, I think, French, possibly Belgian, uh, impressed workers who had been taken over into Germany, as you remember, they had that program. They uh, they'd gone down into one of these mine shafts. It was a heroic act on, on their part. Of course, they were looking for what might be useful to them, and I don't know if they found much. But uh, this was a, about six or seven kilometers from the big working, and in it were uh, the opera costumes and scores, and uh, about, I should think, 15, 20 cases of paintings. 
Well, uh, those cases had been broken open. It was these uh, really refugees mm -hmm. who uh, had gone down to explore for whatever they could find. They, uh, they didn't hurt anything, but that let us see a little more exactly how the things were packed. Mm -hmm. It was reassuring. What about the environment in which uh, these things existed for, I imagine, well, what, f how many years were they? Well, they were only there about a week, really. Oh, really? In other because, words... Because, you see, they'd been held in those flock tours mm -hmm. in Berlin with full confidence that they had full, had full protection. I see. And then uh, bombing became a greater threat. And they decided along about, I think, March of 1945, maybe it was earlier, maybe it was February, I don't know the exact date, I never learned it. But then they decided that they couldn't leave them in Berlin any longer and uh, hurried them out to Merkers. I see. And uh, I think the whole mine working went under the name of Zotzkammergut. But that's not any great importance. Um, well, there were all kinds of things. There was one whole uh, mine working, small, which had been filled up with the uh, memorabilia of Goethe. Mm-hmm. Wow. We didn't move that. Um, it was safe there. And you asked about the environment. Mm -hmm. The whole environment was pretty well safe for anything that was covered. Mm -hmm. Our men, in order to facilitate their, uh, let's say our enlisted men, the combat troops, in order to uh, facilitate their examination of what was in the repository, they had stripped jeeps to a size that would fit on the uh, uh, on the elevators, the mine elevators, mm -hmm. and they'd taken them down in there to get around. Well, of course, the ground was salt, and with the jeeps running around, there was a certain amount of just plain salt thrown mm -hmm. into the air. I don't know what particular salt it was, but I think it was largely sodium chloride. Well, that, of course, was damaging to the things that were not covered. I mean, it was potentially yeah. damaging. In paintings, that amount of salt is not a serious threat, except that it does hold moisture. And if they were moved from that locality into one of normal atmospheric condition, they would have got unusually damp. So the mines were, were relatively dry then? They were uh, a fairly uh, good average uh, relative humidity. Mm. I don't think we were able at the time to measure it, but I think it was a low average, somewhere around 40%. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And that was perfectly healthy for everything except those that might be exposed to salt. That's actually better than uh, many museums, especially in Europe, where they don't have well, uh, modern Well, European museums hold a better level of relative humidity, if they're not air-conditioned, hmm. than our museum. Really? Yes. I was thinking of Naples, for instance, uh, 
Well, you see, Naples never gets very cold, right. in the sense that we have cold. Mm -hmm. They, uh, the, the winter is a bad time in this country because of central heating. And dries out. That, that lowers the relative humidity hmm. almost precipitously. But uh, European museums have kept their uh, holdings in, in better condition than our museums were able to up until maybe 20 years ago when air conditioning began to be installed. Mm -hmm. And uh, so when we had, well, the things that were not case in cases and for uh, packing the cases so that they didn't uh, suffer too much from the vibration of motor vehicles. We had a, a problem to discover what to use. Uh, no packing material. If the Germans had used it, as they probably had, they'd, they'd burned it or taken it away. And then by good luck, these combat fellows ran across a huge military store in one of the mine working, and they were largely fur coats, rough fur coats that had been made for the, uh, for the Russian front. And we took I don't know how many hundreds of fur coats out of that store and used them to pack these things. <laughs> it's very uh, resourceful. Way to Frankfurt. <laughs> well, I'm making a longer story than it deserves, but it was an interesting one. And it became uh, a rather international problem later on when I think by a definitely mistaken uh, judgment, the uh, United States Command in occupied Germany uh, decided that a number of these more valuable things ought to be brought over to this country. You may, may remember the, that episode. Um, well, now, the, the second one was at a uh, place called Bernteroda, which is not very far from Weimar. And that was a repository containing the, what were the, in, the old Prussian treasures from Potsdam. It was a miscellaneous collection and uh, included tapestries, a large number of books, relatively fine bindings and fine editions, um, a group of oh, maybe a hundred or more paintings. Um, the old standards of the old Prussian regiments with all our medals uh, stuck on the staff that uh, held them. That was a big lot. And there were four bodies in caskets. Hmm. From Hindenburg, Frau von Hindenburg, Uh, Friedrich uh, 
King Friedrich I of Prussia, and I think it's his son, uh, Frederick the Great. Amazing. Frederick the Great was in a casket uh, covered over with lead, and it was heavy, of course. Well, there we had combat was slackening, of course. This was uh, about the I think it was about the 5th of May. No, it was the 1st of May when I went over there. Walker Hancock was in charge. He was a monuments officer for the 1st U.S. Army, and this was 1st Army country, 1st Army area. Well, before I got there, he had taken the old uh, royal uh, paraphernalia, really. Uh, the orb and the crown, crowns, I guess there were more than one, and other uh, uh, palatial paraphernalia like that. He'd taken back to headquarters, and I think probably they'd gone to Weimar. So we didn't have those to do. And uh, Walker stayed with us all the time, and, and we had these uh, combat fellows. They were mostly combat engineers, the captain was a man named uh, Horning. Horning, I think it was. Well, he had told us as we talked along, we worked all hours, and of course, to get everything out and get it done. And he said, I want you to leave those four caskets to me. He said, I'm going to take charge of getting them. So we'd be delighted. <laughs> so he took charge of them, and after everything else was out, uh, hoisted up to ground level, was about seven or eight hundred meters down. And the <coughs> elevators were double deck iron, and they were relatively small. They weren't designed for handling that kind of of uh, load. Well, somehow, he, I think he had in mind just having a little interesting fun on his own, and he had a little parade of these caskets down the mine corridor to the uh, shaft. It was then about 10 o'clock in the evening, I think, and we wanted to get everything on the ground level before midnight if we could. Uh, three of the caskets, the ones without the lead cover, went along without much trouble. They had to be wedged into a, a uh, mine, uh, into a, uh, an elevator mm -hmm. cage, uh, corner-wide, in order to clear, but they went up all right, about the usual rate. When it came to the Casket of Frederick the Great. Uh, incidentally, these caskets had, had wreaths of donations on them. One from the uh, from Hitler, and I think at first, when the fellows found that, they saw this thing and it said "Der Führer" or something like that. 
And they thought, they thought that Hitler had been killed. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, no such luck. No. Uh, although it wasn't very long after that. Our came to this lead casket. It could be got into the mine, but uh, we had into to the elevator. Into yeah. the elevator, mm -hmm. and as we had to <clears throat> had to strip practically all the uh, iron um, grill off the edges of the elevator in order to get in there at all. Well, um, I forget how it worked. I think Horning stayed on the that upper level of the double deck elevator, and I was on the level below where I could keep eye on the uh, shaft and make sure that we didn't get jammed in there. And Walker Hancock was up at, uh, at ground level to watch out about taking care of things up there. We started up very slowly, and we, we agreed that we'd have to move slowly in order to avoid a yeah. jam. So, I think it's about, it took us about 15 minutes to get up there. And as we got up, it was just about 11 o'clock. Well, the fellows up there, they were ingenious fellows, combat engineers, and they had rigged up from there were military stores in this mine, and uh, they rigged up, uh, got a hold of enough radio parts and so forth to have a pretty good operating radio. And uh, so they used that to keep themselves awake on uh, night watch and, and uh, to keep themselves amused. Just as this cage with a lead casket got to the ground level. They had on the BBC News from London, and at that moment, they always did this either before or after the news, I can't remember which, the radio was ringing out, God save the king. <laughs> Walker Hancock was up there just jumping up and down. He was <laughs> Uh, anyhow, that's that was, perfect. We'll say number two. <laughs> <laughs> we uh, got everything loaded by midnight, and uh, Walker called in the headquarters for a, an escort. And uh, this was the seventh of May, seventh or eighth. And uh, the officer in charge said, you don't need an escort. Forward action has ceased. So we just took our, uh, the first time we took our trucks and didn't have an escort at all. And drove off. Um, that was the next morning, of course. Mm -hmm. That night I remember warning the engineer captain. I said, well, this probably a little bit of news, and I got a bottle of brandy in here. We better go and recognize the event. Most appropriate. Most yeah. appropriate. Well, uh, I think the next thing of 
rather large scale. This wasn't large scale, but it was interesting because of its connection with the old Prussian uh, uh, military tradition. And about the next one was at uh, a slope mine in the Austrian Alps. And uh, I went down there. That was Third Army area, General Patton. And I think you know the story of that. There's been a good deal published about it. So there's no use going into the whole uh, business of what had happened in the way of, of uh, military and governmental manipulation. Hitler's orders were somewhat confusing. Uh, one order was, this must never fall into the hands of the enemy. And there were others that weren't quite clear. Well, what this was, this uh, repository, was the content of a museum which Hitler was collecting to be uh, constructed at Linz. I think that was his birthplace, probably. Mm -hmm. I believe so. And to be there as a memorial to his mother. It had been the great Hitler Memorial Museum of Linz. And there were some pretty prime things there. The Gant Alderpiece, for example. The uh, fine Michelangelo from Bruges. <coughs> I won't try to run down the list. That great Vermeer from Vienna, from the uh, Chernin collection. I think it still was a Chernin uh, title. However, that's a little sample. And then there were whole uh, mine uh, workings of furniture, quite a few sculpture, and uh, just almost countless things of that sort. I think, I don't really know the total number of holdings that were there. I think we much estimated it might be 10,000. Wow. <clears throat> well, it was a, a big job. And um, it was somewhat complicated by the these uh, manipulations and, and confusions that had gone on just prior to the uh, who are taking full possession of the place, and they had a fully arranged plan to blow up that mm -hmm. whole line. How, in what sense were there complications then? Uh, well, uh, two things had happened uh, in, in that process. There were, things went awfully fast, but apparently the local mine workers been working there on schedules uh, that had pretty well persisted continuously from about the 12th century. Hmm. This was their life, and they had their own pattern of, of work. When they got wind of uh, what was happening, these big, big heavy oak cases, uh, were being carried into the mine by people they'd never seen 
carry in anything before. Each one of them was marked Marmor, nicht stürzen. Well, that didn't mean very much. Each one of them contained a huge blockbuster. And then, of course, they had to be wired in order to wow. trigger the devastation. Well, our, uh, these local fellows had done what they could to sabotage that. And they had uh, dug up the floor of these narrow mine passages and, and had uh, made it that much more difficult to get through. Uh -huh. That sort of thing. That didn't bother us very much or very long. And these fellows who were... Were the explosives actually installed or... Or not? Uh, were they, did they complete that project? Apparently they were installed. <clears throat> that is to say, they were put into the mine chambers. As far as I know the facts, and somebody probably can read this off. There was an article in, quite a long article in uh, the National Geographic, I mm. think. And I don't know how many others have appeared. I think they were installed, but they never got the wiring complete. I see. And the local mine workers got them out of there and just dumped them down the side of the mountain. Great. Good for them. Yeah. In but, other words, they viewed this as, as an invasion, a disruption of their entire life. Uh, no, it was just a destruction of their whole life, mm -hmm. their whole uh, manner of living. And uh, they were, were not going to put up with it. <laughs> Naturally, they, they had quite an interesting uh, traditional system. They, they worked in the mine at certain hours, which probably added up to about 20 hours a week, something like that. Hmm. And the rest of the time, they worked at little farms that were all around there on the mountainside. Sounds healthier than uh, the system in this country. It was country. a very, a very uh, sensible yeah. arrangement altogether. And uh, I don't know how commercially successful it was. I suppose an expert would say it was highly inefficient, but for the people who lived and worked there, it was just their life. Well, that's, that's the important thing. Who was the... Uh, were you among the, the first to actually determine what was in the mine there? Well, I think the first uh, people who got in there with any uh, uh, ability to uh, judge what the content was mm -hmm. were um, Captain Posey, who was a monuments officer for the Third Army, and his uh, brilliant, able, enlisted man assistant, secretary, driver, Lincoln Kirsty. <laughs> and when they saw it, they knew what, what was ahead. Yeah. It must have been terrifically exciting to find that, that yeah, it must have been, yeah. material of that quality. Yeah. But I don't know that we had had any kind of uh, prior intelligence about it. We knew, of course, what had been taken away from Belgium and from the private collections in Paris and uh, 
Diana, Diana particularly, they were the uh, Rothschild mm -hmm. collection. And much, most of that, I, I believe, was recovered. I think it was. But what about, uh, is there any way to judge the, oh, the well, amount and nature of um, art objects in lesser private collections, probably Jewish families, uh, collections that were confiscated and probably, or at least I think it must be a possibility, then sold off or traded and negotiated by um, high-ranking Germans. Uh, <clears throat> Is that all just speculation? I don't know the, the facts about that whole process of uh, restitution. As far as I do know about it, it was fairly, fairly uh, complete. Mm -hmm. uh, as far as I know, Hitler, or uh, uh, Goering, for instance, hit, this was one, Hitler's one big hideout. But Goering had others, which were over at uh, the uh, so-called Last Redoubt. I'll say the name of a minute. I saw what he had there, and uh, he didn't. I don't think they sold very much after they acquired mm -hmm. them. They just grabbed them and held on to them. Yeah. What about the? idea that when the, well it was clear that the end was coming, that perhaps some uh, Germans who had managed, who were interested in accumulating things and were able to get uh, art objects, maybe in some cases small, valuable, perhaps decorative arts, things mm -hmm. that were more portable than major paintings or sculpture. What about the idea then they would uh, negotiate uh, exit from Germany maybe to South America with art objects or actually take them away. Do you, do you, in other words, do you think that this has been perhaps romanticized and exaggerated somewhat? I really don't know uh, enough of the facts and the total count of the facts to know. I suppose in some cases it would be a long time learning. Yeah. yeah. Now there was one fellow who was very in influential in that situation at, Mer at uh, Alt Ausse, that was the, the uh, village where the mine was. Uh, well, the mine was about a mile up the mountain, but the village was Alt Ausse, and we always call it the Alt Ausse mine. Um, very influential fellow in the, in the high command of uh, Hitler was a man named Martin Bormann. Mm -hmm. You may even have heard about him. Well, I, there's been a good deal of talk about him and what happened to him. And he was one of the persons who was issuing uh, orders at the time when all this confusion occurred. And nobody quite knew what to do. And that delay was what saved the contents of that mine. However, uh, Bormann, as I remember hearing about it later, got off to South America. I may be wrong about that. But uh, whatever he he got, he certainly didn't take anything that anybody knew about mm -hmm. from the Aldous Hitler Memorial Collection. 
I see. Well, they probably had to move, obviously they had to move very quickly and... Oh, yes. And therefore, to arrange for transporting objects is... A very frantic situation altogether. Couldn't exactly send them through the mail. No. <laughs> well, I think this is absolutely fascinating. I could uh, certainly go on listening to accounts of this experience because most of it's pretty new to me. Certainly. Well, there has been a good deal published, as I told you. There was one rather long article by uh, one of the good writers, uh, the one who used to write from uh, Paris to the uh, New Yorker. I'll say her name in a minute. Uh, she she had a series of three articles under under the title that uh, they used to use on, on New Yorker, uh, Annals of Crime. Mm -hmm. And it was all about this business of German looting and uh, the way things had been hid away. Um, it was a very good, very good piece. Well, when was, when did that appear in, uh, 46, late 40s? Oh, probably 46 or 47. Uh, yeah, I'll have to try to look that up because I yeah. would be interested. I certainly don't know many of the details, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, and it's interesting mm -hmm. to hear first-hand experience. Uh, we mentioned, of course, Tom Howe's uh, book on the subject. And I well, I think, uh, I think Tom Howe gives quite a good deal about the, uh, about the Audace mine. Mm -hmm. And, of course, he was there, <coughs> so whatever he says is, is accurate. He didn't get there at the start, but he and, and Lamont Moore came along later, and they were great help there. Well, is there anything else from that uh, fascinating episode that uh, you'd like to recount? Uh, no, except that I, whether I spoke of this earlier, I can't recall. I would just like to make clear that this whole activity was not a uh, an undertaking on the part of the United States to uh, save works of art. Uh, it was a, an undertaking under the Hague Conventions mm -hmm. and under the rules of land warfare, which require that uh, all educational property in the uh, combat area or, or other areas of occupation has to be regarded as as a private property mm -hmm. exempt from spoilage, seizure and the sort. And that's that's why it was done. It was done as a routine necessity by the by the uh, United States Army, and it had been done prior to our arrival in the European theater. It had been done very faithfully and with great correctness by the monument service of the German Army. Mm -hmm. They were very, very uh, conscientious about that. Of course, they had nothing to do with what the 
men far above them were able to steal. But uh, as to protecting monuments and works of art in the uh, combat area of the German army, they've done a, a very, very good job. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, f most fortunate that that was the case, too. Yes. Most fortunate that these objects, the, certainly the majority, seem to have survived very well indeed and suffered mm -hmm. very little damage, yeah. uh, as far as I know. And I gather from what you say that was the case. Some of these uh, key monuments, these masterpieces, mm -hmm. um, the risk of moving, even under the, the best circumstances, yeah. is considerable. And, 